0: love for us and in the Bible the person of Jesus is revealed the Bible is all about Jesus and the great love that he has for the world in the Old Testament the first 39 books of the Bible it prepares the way for Jesus coming. and then the New Testament the first four books which are called the Gospels is all about the life of Jesus And how he came to seek and save those who are lost. And then in the book of Acts, we see how Jesus loves the church so much that the church has to go and tell everybody about it. And after the book of Acts and the rest of the epistles and letters that that follow that, it's all about Jesus' teaching and, and how we can look more like Jesus in a world That doesn't look like. And then in the book of Revelation, we have a picture of a, a raised and ascended Jesus. A Jesus that is on the right hand of the Father, victorious over all things. A Jesus that one day will come and make all things right. The Bible is all about Jesus from Genesis. To Revelation. It's about the one hero of all time. Our Lord and Savior. And that Lord and Savior is the, is the Lord and Savior that died for you. And the Lord and Savior that loves you. Let's read about him some more. Amen? If you could turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is in the, the New Testament. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20, a section that's rich on Christology, gives us a rich picture of Jesus, and then we're going to jump down to verse 23. And the title of today's sermon is Jesus, Supreme Over All Things. Jesus, Supreme Over All Things. And this is in continuation of a series that we're going through called The Trinity. Um, And We've been learning about the Trinity. We've learned together and uh, refreshed on three affirmations of a triune God, a God who uh, is unique, unique God. What's those three affirmations? Affirmation number one, there's one God. Affirmation number two, God is three persons. Affirmation number three, each person is fully God, amen? So when we talk about the Trinity, we say that, they, that God is one person. Oh, God is, God, there's one God. God is three persons, and each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. The Holy Spirit is no less God than God the Father, And Jesus is no less God than the Holy Spirit or God the Father as well. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, and then verse 23. As we are going to focus our attention, set our gaze, set our eyes on who we just sang about. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You may be seated. Jesus supreme over all things. Whether we have personally experienced it or heard about it from others, we all know the devastation that comes with identity theft. Identity theft, of course, is when someone pretends to be someone else by assuming that person's identity, typically in order to access resources or obtain credit and other benefits in that person's name. And as a result, the person whose identity is taken many times has their credit wrecked and suffers monetary loss. Victims of identity thefts are normally taken through a long, discomforting process to undo the the effects of the fraud. And here, we see Paul writing to the church of Colossus as there has been a major attempt of identity theft. Paul is writing to the church here, and he is is trying to... uh, Go and, uh, against what a, a fraudulent teacher has been teaching about Jesus. There was either a person or persons who crept into church and who tried to uh, confuse what the apostle had laid down. They were teaching a very weird and damaging doctrine. And whatever this person or group was teaching, we know that they were encouraging the worship of false angels, and questioning the deity of Jesus. They were apparently making an argument that said that Jesus was an angel and that Jesus was not really fully the Son of God. And these teachers, they appear to have superior insight into the spiritual realm as they advise the Colossian Christians to practice certain rites and taboos and, and rituals as a means to protect themselves against evil and to find true salvation. But the Apostle Paul learns about this dangerous, dangerous teaching that is creeping into this church while he is a thousand miles away in Rome from a man by the name of Apiphyrus. And this man was, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, was the man who actually was a disciple of Paul and who was used to, to plant this church. He helped build this church through the preaching of the gospel. So he runs back to the man who discipled him. He runs back to the man who poured into him. And he tells them, this is what's going on in the church. We need to do something about it. So the Apostle Paul writes a a very devotional and poetic praise to Jesus. He, He writes to this church, setting the record straight about who Jesus is. Taking back and reclaiming his identity in order that the church in Coloss, in order that these Colossians would worship him in spirit and in truth. This text is very, very devotional, very poetic. In fact, it is written as a hymn. It is written to be sung. He wrote it this way in order that the church would be able to easily remember it. And recall it when false teachers crept in with a a agnostic message. I believe today that we, as a church, that we need to take heed to this hymn. And we need to, to unpack it and to see what it says in order that we would stand firm and steadfast in the hope that we receive through the message of Jesus Christ. There are some of us here who have family members, that's Jehovah Witnesses, co-workers, that's Mormons. There there are some of us here who mingle and, and constantly are in interaction with people who say, yes, Jesus was a great person. Yes, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus is important, but Jesus is not the Son of God and God himself. We must look at this text to see that the Bible says the exact opposite. It says that Jesus is supreme over all things, and he is God. So we need to see this text in order that we would have a, a true vision of Jesus. But we also need to to see this text because some of us in here, we are in the midst of a a lot of distress. And we came through those doors, these doors this morning, on very heavy burdened and very worried and anxious, maybe about our health, maybe about our relationships, maybe about the the path our our life is headed, maybe about crushed dreams and maybe about impossible work Condition, and we need to see that Jesus is not some frail, weak person who is in a corner of our lives, but Jesus is the preeminent person who should be in the center of our lives and, and who holds our lives together. Knowing and appreciating the true identity of Jesus deeply impacts every area of our lives. It deeply impacts the decisions we make. It deeply impacts how we handle life storms. It deeply impacts whether or not we are waging war against our flesh. It deeply impacts whether or not we are living our lives to make much of Jesus, and that's what we were put here on Earth. And that's Paul's argument throughout the book of Colossians. He is trying to get us to see that Jesus is preeminent, that Jesus is supreme over all things. He's trying to get us to set our affections, to set our eyes, to set our gaze upon him. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, we see the climax of the book as Paul says these words to the church at Colossians, He says, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above and not the things that are below. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the message of this book. To not have Jesus in the corner of our lives, but to have Jesus in the center of our lives and to have everything in our lives run through him. Every decision, every trial to go through him. So Paul does this by by showing us two things in this text. Two amazing things. Answering two questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Shows us who he is. And number two, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? In order to combat these false teachers, he wants to show us who he is, who Jesus is, and what he has done. In verse 17, he shows us who Jesus is. He says, He is the image, the visible image of an invisible God, the firstborn amongst creation. He is. The image of the invisible God, the the firstborn of all creation. So he shows us who he is. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? What does that mean? He is the image of the invisible God. Well, that word image in the Greek is where we get our word icon or statue from. It's where we get our word icon or statue from. So Paul is is teaching us that that Jesus is the physical manifestation of God the Father. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 7, is actually the book right before the book of Colossians, if you could turn your Bible there. If you have your Bible open to Colossians, all you got to do is flip a page or two and you'll see it. Listen to what it says. We dig more into Jesus being the physical manifestation, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Look at what he says in verse 6. This is the Apostle Paul. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of God. So listen to what he says in verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, it says he was in the form of God. And what that means is that in eternity's past, before Jesus' incarnation, before he was born of a virgin through Mary, he was invisible like God the Father. They are spirits. They were not, he was not confined to a body. So he was in the form of God. But he did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped. In order to come to the world to fulfill the mission that God the Father had planned before the foundation of the world, Jesus took off the form of God the invisibility of God, and he put on, the, uh, on a visible form of God. He put on a body. Look at what he said, verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So he is the image of an invisible God, meaning that the Son of God, who has been God for eternities past, was put in human form in order to be a visible representation of the Godhead. The fullness of the Godhead, Paul goes on to say, dwelt or lived in him because he is fully God. Paul is trying to tell the church at Colossus, be careful because these false teachers are trying to dupe you. He took on the form of a of a servant. Now, there's many reasons why he he did this. Many reasons why he took off the form of God and put on the form of a servant. Uh, and we'll get to a, a, another huge reason later. But right now, uh, you know, one of the, we want to see that one of the reasons why he did this was to reclaim the Father's identity. Jesus put on human flesh because. God's people, Israel, was misrepresenting who God the Father was. They were doing religion in the name of God the Father that did not reveal the heart of God the Father and who he was. So Jesus came back in order to say, no, this is who God the Father is. This is who we are. And when you see the Father, when you see me, you see him. see me, you see him. This summer I was in Texas and had the privilege of listening to a a gentleman preach while there. And uh, he was telling a story in the middle of his sermon about how he and his wife's uh, identity was recently stolen. And how it was very painful and they lost a lot of uh, monetary things and had their credit jacked up. And he was telling us about how long and drawn out the process is to to get their identity back. And he said, towards the end of trying to reclaim their identity, he got a call from the police station as they realized that he did not fully complete a form that they needed in order to keep the process going. And he said, well, I've been down there before and we've been through this. Is it possible for you to fax me the information? And I'll fill it out and I'll fax it back to you. And they said, sir, no. If you want your identity back, you've got to come down to the station and reclaim it. Jesus did not want his father being misrepresented. Did not want his glory and the glory of the spirit to be misrepresented. So Jesus said, I'm going to come down to earth myself. As the visible image of the invisible God. But he goes on and he says, and he is the firstborn, the firstborn of creation. He is the firstborn of creation. Paul is trying to remind us and and show us who Jesus is. And he he uses a term that has really messed up a lot of people. In fact, from uh, Arian all the way up to the Jehovah Witnesses of our day, they have built their theology around terms and verses like this. If You have a family member who is a Jehovah Witness. This term is a term, and this verse is a verse that they will, will point to in order to disprove the deity of Jesus. It says the firstborn of all creation. Now when we hear the word firstborn, the first thing that we think about is chronology or order. And that's what they argue, that this is saying that Jesus is a created being, but he was God's first created being. In fact, their theology teaches that Jesus was Michael, the archangel that we see in the Old Testament. And that at his baptism, when the spirit descended upon him, Jesus then became God in the flesh or I'm sorry, or or the, the number one representative of God rather than Jesus being God in the flesh the entire time. But what they don't understand is how this term, firstborn of all creation, is used. It is used to speak of a chronological birth rank. And we see this in Luke chapter 2. But it is also and most prominently used throughout the Bible and in the Old Testament to speak of the persons who held uh, the first place in a parent's heart or first place in God's heart. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19, they both speak of Israel being the firstborn of God. But Israel as a people, as a nation, was not the first nation. But what it's speaking of is that Israel, it has first place in God's heart. He were their, their peculiar, uh, his peculiar people. And then in Psalm chapter 89, verse 27, we read these words, speaking about the coming Messiah, speaking about Jesus. And this is what God says, a prophetic word. I also shall make him my firstborn. Then he defines what that means. Comma, then he defines what that means. The highest of kings of the earth. The highest of all the kings of the earth. I'll make him my firstborn. The highest of all the kings of the earth. Meaning that Jesus is the most preeminent, and prominent person in the earth. And God says, I'm going to set him up to be so and to put him on display in that way. Jesus is the physical manifestation of an invisible God, and he is the most prominent person anywhere hands down, more pre- prominent than anyone who has ever lived because he is God. He is not created. He is begotten. To be begotten means simply to be brought forth. To be brought forth. For God so loved the the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only son that he brought forth. So that's who who Jesus is. Preeminent. Most dignified. The most glorious, the one who for all eternity, had first place in the Father's heart. But what has he done? What has he done? He is the image of the invisible God, the first, mom, the first uh, born amongst creation. For by him all things were created in heaven or in earth, he says whether thrones, uh, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, now he's going to show us what he has done. And what has he done? He's done two things. Number one, he's done something in regards to creation. And number two, we'll see in verse 18 that he's done something in regards to the church, in regards of creation. What has he done? He has created all things. He has created all things. Jesus is the, the generator of creation. The generator of creation. For by him all things were created. All things. Which is another argument of why he wasn't created, because all things were created through him. He is God. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. He is the creator, Paul says. And I love how Paul does this. He, he packs terms upon terms, two at a time. He says, in heaven, everything that's been created in heaven, and the galaxies, the black hole, the stardust, the clouds, everything is created by him. But then he says, on earth, yes, spiders and mosquitoes and hippos and giraffes in molecules, in nuclei, in atoms. And then he goes on to say, both visible and invisible. The things that you can see with your eyes and the fungi and the things that you cannot see with your eyes. Paul is saying, Jesus is not an angel. He's not a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is preeminent. He is unique. He is the one who generates and who creates everything. But then he takes it And he really goes to war with the false teachers because then he's going to show us that he doesn't just create the physical things that we see as far as in in the earthly order. He says thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Paul here isn't just talking about uh, uh, here on earth. He isn't just talking about. Uh, some, some pope or some dictator or some president. Yes, Jesus created them as well. But he's talking about in the spiritual realm. He's saying, church of Colossus, you have to understand that Jesus is the one who sets up the spiritual realm as well. He's the one who had created the angels. And he's the one who, who gave the angels their rank. He's the one who created the fallen angels, the ones who rule principalities and powers that are unseen. He says, Jesus is Lord over that too. Every inch of this universe, visible and invisible, is created by Jesus. It's created by Jesus. So he is the generator of creation. But look at what he says here. I love this phrase. and We want to think about this phrase. All things were created through him and for him. What does that mean? that all things were created for him. Not only is Jesus the generator, the creator, but he says Jesus is the goal of creation. All things were created for him. Every single thing on this earth was created for the praise and honor of Jesus. The trees were created for the praise and honor of Jesus. The birds were created for the praise and honor of Jesus, Minister Macy. The rocks were created for the praise and honor of Jesus. Everything was created for His praise and honor. He's to be preeminent, and one day everything in this earth. We'll praise and honor Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the lordship, the preeminence, the supreme rule of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. That's why Jesus does not appreciate the corner of our lives but demands the center of our lives. Because he is the center of the universe. And we see this in the book of Revelation when the people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue sings the praises of the crucified but a risen lamb. But he also sustains all things. So he's the generator. He is the goal. But he also is the glue. He also is the glue of creation. This is amazing. Look at your Bibles. Look at your Bibles. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, Jesus is before all things. He was with God the Father in the beginning from all eternity, and he holds all things together. He sustains all things. He maintains the delicate balance necessary to life's existence. He quite literally is the glue that is holding it all together. He is the power behind every consistency in the universe. He is the power behind gravity, he is responsible for the energy that we feel, and the wind that blows, he keeps it together. And you know, scientists, they have just, for, since, since 1920, been trying to figure out how things at a subatomic level are held together. How things at a subatomic level are held together. They they see that we have neutrons and, and, and protons and, and 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 photons, but they've been trying to rack their mind around the fact that they don't know how it's held together. One of the the, the, the men who started the Big Bang Theory, I was reading quotes by him this week and and there was one quote where he was just marveling at creation. He says, yeah, we, we see all of this, and, and we're starting to understand atoms, but what we don't understand is how there has not been a nuclear explosion yet. What is keeping the nuclei from running into each other and, for, from, and everything from just exploding? We've seen recently in the news, have you guys heard about the God particle? The God particle, which is the Higgs boson which is, 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 is getting right to this mystery, is they're trying to understand how some things have mass, some atoms some, some folks, and some things like photons don't have mass. They're saying, what makes something have mass and what makes something don't have mass? And they're trying to figure out what holds that mass together. And they said it must be a God particle that's doing it. And I'm saying, <laughs> you're right. It's Jesus. Who's holding it together and there may be a particle that they discover that's holding it together, but that particle is going to point back to Jesus. And when you find that particle, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're still going to have problems because you still can't answer how that particle came. But the Bible tells us, Paul tells us clearly over 2000 years ago that Jesus upholds everything. The universe is upheld by him. But one day, Jesus will allow everything in this earth to be dissolved. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says, Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. One day, this earth who is groaning and moaning for the return of Jesus And for his creator and maker, one day God will allow all of those particles to do exactly what he's trying to figure out. He will allow them all to come apart as the heavens will collide with the earth and we will have a new heavens and a new earth. And it will only happen because Jesus, the preeminent son of God, Jesus, the supreme ruler of all the universe, said so. Not only who he is, he is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What he does with creation, he generates it. He is its goal, and he is its glue. But now we're going to see what he does in regards with the church. Verse 20, get this. In fact, I'm sorry, verse 18. It says, And he is the head of the the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So we see that Jesus is preeminent over creation and creation's past and present and future, but we see that Jesus also is the Lord of new creation. That Jesus restores, Paul says, he restores and reconciles a new creation. And why does Jesus get to be the one who restores and reconciles a new creation? It's because of what he has done. Verse 20 says, whether on earth or in heaven, because he made peace by the blood of the cross, Jesus is over the church. He is over the body of Christ because he died for the church in order to restore the church back into fellowship with God the Father. Therefore, he is the one who is the head of the body, it says. He is the one who is the head of the body. What does that mean that Jesus is the head of the body? When this is used, it's not speaking of or necessarily speaking of Jesus being like the head of a company or CEO he is the Lord of the church, but rather it looks at the church as a living organism that is inseparably tied together by the living Christ It's saying that Jesus controls every part of the church and that Jesus gives life to the church and directions to the church. His life is lived out through all the members of the body of Christ. And it is his life that brings unity in the church. It is his life that brings energy into the church. It is his life that coordinates the diversity of gifts in the church. Jesus is the center of creation because he created it he upholds it and he keeps it together but Jesus is the center of the church because he died for her. He bled for her. You understand what Jesus did for the church? Jesus became the visible image of God, because our image was marred. In Genesis, we learned that God created us as image bearers of him, meaning that we were created to be fully fully alive in God. We were created to be emotional and relational beings. But at that time, before sin entered into the world, morally, we were pure and we were reflecting the glory or the fame of God in our bodies. But the Bible said that we rebelled against the God who created the universe because we wanted to be God's ourselves. And we sinned against this gracious and loving God. And we said, no, we want to rule. We want to be in control. And at that moment that Adam and Eve sinned, humanity fell. This world fell. This world had then become broken and marred. Our images were messed up. And the problem with that is that God, a perfect and holy God, a, a morally pure God cannot embrace a people who have marred images and remain holy. But God sent down his son. His visible image. And on the cross, Jesus allowed his physical body, his physical image to be beat. He allowed his image to be torn apart. He allowed his image to be disrespected as he bore every single sin that marred our image. So that we could stand before God through Christ as a people with a perfect image. And now we're able to embrace God the Father, fellowship with God the Father, as if we were perfect in image because God has given us the righteousness of his Son. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 3, unbelievable, unbelievable, Colossians chapter 3 verse 10. Paul says, and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus become a part of the church, become a part of the body of Christ, meaning that we take our directions from Jesus. We don't put them in a center. in the corner of our lives, but we put him in the center of our lives as everything revolves around him because he is the prominent Lord. And he begins to shape God the Father and renew us and to make us look more like Jesus as we learn about him. In Romans chapter 8, 29, it says that God is conforming us to the image of his son. And one day we will stand before the presence of God in Christ's image. Meaning that we will not only be emotional and and relational, but that we will be morally pure as God will take away all of our sin and give us a a nature that won't be able to sin against them. And we will be back in the presence of God. And we will see the 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 preeminent figure of this universe, Jesus, and worship him and adore him for all eternity. Knowing who Jesus is and what he has done affects every aspect of your life. Believing that Jesus, verse 21, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Jesus is going to reconcile everything to himself. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. We were once estranged. We were once alienated. We were once hostile in mind. But Jesus changed all that by making us new through the bloody cross. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. This is why Paul went into this deep theology. This is why Paul wrote this hymn. Verse 23. This, this, this was the whole point of what he just wrote. He says he is trying to motivate us to continue in faith, to be stable to be steadfast, and not to shift, not to move from our hope. See, some of us in here, you know, we're here today, we're at church, but we've been shifting from our hope, and our lives testify of it. And all of us in here at some time are tempted to shift from our hope, and at some moments shift from our hope. We believe the lies of Satan. And we, we twist Jesus' identity or we forget about who he is and we make our lives about something other than him. We make our lives about our job or our status. We make our lives about our schooling or our grandkids. But no, God says, no. Paul says, no, I want to show you Jesus in order that you would make him your life, in order that you would be stable in order that you would be steadfast, in order that you would walk in faith and hope, in hope. As the church, we have a hope that the world does not know. People who believe in the, in the Higgs-Boson and who, who are thinking that that particle is, is what's going to help them to, to figure out evolution, they don't have true hope because when they die, they die. But we have hope that we will see the face of the Son of God. The face of the one who is a visible representation of God. The face of the one who is the firstborn of creation. The face of the one who has created all things, thrones and dominions and authorities. We have that hope. So now when my life is falling apart, when relationships aren't going the way that I think they should go, I don't fall apart. Why? Why don't I fall apart? Because Jesus is the glue that keeps everything together. The same one who's keeping the atom together, the same one who's keeping the nuclei together, the same one who's keeping the earth spinning perfectly in in the middle of the galaxy is the one who's able to sustain my relationships, who's able to sustain my relationship with my kids, who's able to sustain my relationship with my wife and co-workers and friends. The one whom you look to, Jesus, the preeminent one, should be the glue the glue that holds us together. When the world is falling apart, I can praise Jesus because he is holding it together and it's just a mirage. Yea, though I walk through the valley and a shadow of death, it's just a shadow. Because the preeminent, preeminent king is holding it together. When it looks like life is a dead end, when it looks like you'll never get married, when it looks like you'll never have, have joy, when it looks like you'll, you'll never be satisfied at work and at home, you've got to remember that he is the one who created all things. And the one who created all things can make a way out of nowhere. He can move blockades. He can give you joy in the midst of your situation. He may say, baby, I'm not going. about to create a new situation for you. But what I'm going to do is create a new way for you to think about your problems. And I'm going to give you contentment and satisfaction in the midst of it. When we see Jesus as the preeminent being, as the Lord of the universe, we don't run to Jesus in fear, telling him about our big problems. No, we run to our big problems in faith and and tell him about our big God. He is the generator, the creator. He is the glue. But please remember, he is the goal. You were created for the praise and honor of Jesus. You are on earth to give him praise and to give him honor. No one else and nothing else can compete with him. Nothing else in this universe deserves the center of your life because it is frail and it will fall. They will disappoint, but Jesus will never disappoint. And if you think that Jesus has disappointed, you've got the wrong perspective of him. He's the one who restores and who reconciles and who brings all things together. He's the generator. He's the goal. He's the glue of all things. Put them, put them in the center of your life. Don't tuck them away in the corner. When it's time to make a decision, don't tuck them away in the corner and run to them in the corner and say, oh, what, well, well I, I, what do you think I should do? And then take that as, as a suggestion. No, but put them in the center of your life and say, Jesus, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. The one who is before all things, the one who created all things, the one whom you found delight to fully dwell in. We thank you for your son, Jesus, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of, de- of the dead, the one who is pre- preeminent and-, and prominent. Out of all those who have been resurrected, he is the most important. We thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, the generator, the glue, and the goal of all creation. May our lives give you honor. May our lives give you glory. For the person whose life is fallen apart, Father, for the person who's given up on life, I pray today that you would allow them to see the beauty of your son. For the person who doesn't think they're getting a fair shake and who doesn't think that, that you love them, Father God, I pray that you would give them a crystal clean view of your cross, And remind them that you cared enough to allow your son to die in their place. The person who is burdened and being crushed by sin, Father, may they look to your son who through the cross offers forgiveness of their sins. In Jesus' name, amen.